Dear friends, when I was in college, I was in a history class. It was one of my very first years of college at Grand Rapids Community College. And I was in a history class, a world history class, and the professor had returned uh, our test. We had taken a test, and the professor had returned the test for our review. So we took the test back, and as we were working through it, and as the professor was answering our questions about why we had gotten certain questions wrong, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the questions had pertained to the Bible. And, uh, of course, this is a secular school. So the question was something along the lines of, uh, I think it was a true or false question, actually. And it said something along the line of, uh, um, the, Bible, the Bible as a historical record contains no errors. Something like that. And, uh, of course, I had put true to that. And uh, other people had put true as well. And as we were going through the test, we came to this particular question. And the professor stopped there and said, now I know that, you know, some of you may have religious beliefs that contradicts this, but as a historical record, we have to believe that the Bible has errors just like every other historical record. Well, there was one uh, African-American gentleman there, considerably braver than myself, who stood up to challenge the professor on that uh, question. And in fact, he, uh, he was very brave because not only did he stand up and challenge the professor, but he actually turned to us. Now, again, I, I, uh, I was a young man at the time. I wish I could say I was brave and bold. Uh, it wasn't the case because when he turned around to the, to the audience, he said, now everybody knows that the Bible can't have errors in it. How many of you people believe that? And there he looked at the, the whole student. Oh, there are maybe 30 students in the class. Oh, now I had to make a decision, didn't I? And I kind of, you know, put my hand halfway up, halfway down. But he was very bold. And I think that was my first experience of facing the pressure of a secular crowd at a college and having to be one who was willing to endure uh, some reproach for the stand that I would take on the truth of God's word. I wish I'd had the courage of that young fella who stood up to uh, stand for the truth of God's word. Uh, but I didn't at that time. Uh, it came slowly on. But uh, at that time, I wasn't, the, I wasn't as courageous as I would have liked to have been. Well, that's where we come in our passage this morning, dear friends. And that's the subject I'd like to consider with you today, because it flows so naturally from this passage, is the fact of dealing with reproach, dealing with mockery and the ridicule that comes from naming the name of Christ. What I'd like to do then is just to make some observations on this passage and then to move to some points of application that we can make on it. So last week we considered Ananias and Sapphira. The week before that, we had the apostles who had been arrested and brought before the council. And now we just have a repeat of that. Because after Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead by the judgments of God, again, there's this wave of interest and respect and even fear on the part of the Jerusalem populace as they begin to hear these rumors of what's taking place uh, at the hands of the apostles. And they see the other miracles the apostles are doing. And you might say, all Jerusalem is on end, right? All Jerusalem is upset, right? There's this, there's this wave of, there's this movement, isn't there, uh, towards the name of Jesus and the preaching of the apostles. So once again, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, has to act. They have to do something. And so we see really something of a repeat of what took place after the healing of that lame man. 
which took place in a previous chapter. So let's consider that in the first place, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let me just make some brief comments about the story here before we look at some application. In uh, chapter 5 and verse 17, we read these words, but the high priest rose up. Now again, already we can see that probably the high priest had very little interest in rising up. He would have been an older man at the time, but the pressure from the Jewish leadership is now, you might say there's such an outcry that something has to be done with these people. The whole city is in an uproar. So the high priest is, is moved to act. And we're told also the group that is largely behind this because it says the high priest rose up along with all his associates. That is the sect of the Sadducees. And now we see something very interesting in the book of Acts, my friends. And that is we begin to see a, a split happening in the Jewish leadership. Because the, Sadducee, the Sadducees are the, the rich, the influential people in the Jewish leadership. The Sadducees are much more interested in working with Rome as opposed to against them. The Sadducees were rationalists, right? They didn't believe in miracles. They certainly didn't believe in a resurrection. We might call them the elite, the aristocracy, whatever you want, whatever word you want to use, but these were the people who were in cahoots with the Romans to, to a large extent, were wealthy and, were, and had most influence. These were the people who were primarily vigorously opposed to the apostles. Now, why don't we read about the Pharisees here? I think the Pharisees are mentioned, and yet, like I said, there's something of a split happening here, and it's a happy split. This is the work of the Spirit of God. Because, my friends, we know from later on in the book of Acts that many of the Pharisees were converted to Christ. Now, I want you to turn to a passage with me in Acts again. In Acts 15 and verse 5. In Acts 15 and verse 5. Again, I, I, let's not worry at this point about the context here. But just look at Acts 15 verse 5 where we read, Verse 5 of Acts chapter 15. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. And I'll, I'll just stop right there. Again, many of the Pharisees were now coming to Christ. Were leaving behind their Jewish religion. And were embracing the Savior. What a, what a glorious blessing that is. What a glorious truth. That these self-righteous Pharisees who Jesus had condemned as hypocrites. And, as, uh, uh, and all these other things, right? And, uh, John the Baptist had called them a generation of vipers, right? Now they were coming to Christ. Remember, the Pharisees had no problem with a resurrection, right? They believed in the resurrection. They disagreed with the Sadducees on that. They just couldn't accept a resurrection in the name of Jesus. Well, now, by the power of the work of the Spirit in them, many Pharisees are coming to believe in Christ. So, one of uh, the, the very leader of the Pharisees is this man named Gamaliel, who we'll talk about later. But Gamaliel was the most influential Jewish scholar of his day, the most highly respected man. And he was the head of the Pharisees. And we'll read with great interest his comments shortly. Let me then move to point number two here, release and a mandate. Now, the apostles, uh, Peter and John and whoever else of the apostles were arrested, are put in a public jail, verse 18, and then verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. And taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak 
to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Well, I told you before that we're reading a book, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? This wasn't any work of the apostles. This is a work of God himself. He sends his angel, and of course, a prison lock presents no difficulty to an angel. Children, what an amazing thing. Can you imagine what Peter and John must have thought when the door swung open and there standing there was not a guard, a prison guard, not an executioner, not a messenger from the Sanhedrin, but an angel of God. He leads them out. And the angel gives them also a mandate. And I find this so interesting. This mandate that the angel gives, go, stand, and speak. That's the calling of of pastors, for sure, right? But also every Christian, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple. And then notice, read very slowly, carefully here, the whole message. The whole message. In other words, the angel very carefully cautions the apostles that when they speak, that they would bring everything that the gospel contains. Now, as a preacher, that's very meaningful to me because I also feel the temptation, friends, to speak about this more than that. Right? We all, I think, have the subjects, these topics that we like the best in theology. And in the message of the gospel, it can be very tempting to focus on this and to downplay this a little bit or the reverse, whatever it may be. But again, I draw your attention to the mandate the apostles received. Speak the whole message. Remember when the Apostle Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, I did not cease day and night to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now that's a faithful preacher, my friends. One who can say that he did not hold anything back. The whole counsel of God. Yes, but some people might get upset. Well, again, that's not to say the pastor can't present things tactfully and, and, and as... as as skillfully as he can, you know, we don't want to unnecessarily offend people. But again, the message of the gospel is offensive. The message of the law is offensive. Naturally, inherently so. And some of that cannot be, those, those sharp edges cannot always be rounded off, right? They have to cut. Well, the angel says, preach the whole message. And then these rather curious words, the whole message of this life, of this life. Why the demonstrative pronoun there, this It means that the angel is saying, there's a specific life that I want you to preach. There's the whole message of the gospel, but there is this life. Now, what could that mean? I wonder if the children and the, the young folks in our, in our midst this morning could make a guess at what that life, what does this life mean? If this was a class, I'd call on you right now, but I can't do that from the pulpit. This life, maybe you can write it down on your paper. This life, think about Jesus, right? He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Certainly this is the life that the angel teaches them to preach. Preach this life, this eternal life. And remember, eternal life is not just not just the idea that our life will never end, right? But it's a gift that God gives us right now that we have, and I think we preached on this some time ago, the life of Jesus living within us. That eternal life that's like a, a burning flame within us that never can be extinguished. Preach this life, says the angel. By faith in Christ, you have everlasting 
life. And that term, life, is, is so much, it's so full. It's so much more than just a beating heart and, and, and a brain waves, right? It's, a, it's the full life that we have in Christ. Anyways, I find that mandate uh, so interesting. The whole message of this life. Well, let's move on then to the bewilderment that is in the minds of the Jewish leadership. And here you can't help but see the humor in this, right? If you, if you chuckle as you read this, I think that that's quite appropriate. Because you can imagine, my friends, the shock, the astonishment, when these people go to the jail, right? The officers came, and the prison is locked tight. The locks have not been broken. Nothing has been beaten down. There's no holes been dug, no uh, evidence of any kind of uh, uh, prison break here. Everything is in place, with the simple exception that the apostles are not there. Again, you can imagine how those officers must have inspected everything so carefully. How could this possibly be the case? And then, again, the, the, the humor of the situation when these officers hear these words, and then a messenger comes, verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. You know, my friends, even in, in, the, in, the, in the, the astonishment of that situation, I think already we can see the love of God because even in this situation, God is coming. It's almost, I'm reminded of the plagues of Egypt. Remember when the magicians came to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, this, this is something beyond us. This is too powerful for us. We're, we're up against something that we can't fight. At what point did the Jewish leadership think to themselves, we're up against something that we're not going to win? At what point didn't their conscience begin to speak and say, this is the act of God? That's what the, remember, that's what the magician said to Pharaoh. This is the finger of God. Now, they're pagan gods. But here, Jewish leaders, they know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know a miracle has been done. They've seen the miracles and heard about the miracles the apostles did. The lame man stood right in front of them. But their hearts are hardened. And they can't even hear the call that God brings them. You might say that empty prison cell preached. It spoke to them. You're not on the right side of this issue. Gamaliel. Well, we'll talk about Gamaliel. At any rate, the bewilderment when they see this new miracle and the, and the preaching that God brings them even in this, in this uh, situation. Peter, again, number four on my outline. Peter, again, is completely fearless. Once again, he stands up. You see how Peter... Uh, is the leader of the apostles at this point. And even though it does say that the, all the apostles speak, uh, Peter's speech is the one that we are given. And it's the same stuff, right? It's the same material. Peter always preaches the same message. He starts out by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And then he preaches the resurrection again. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And remember the resurrection points. It's, it's God's way of pointing to Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one you've been waiting for. He is your king. 
whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one, right? That's Peter's point in, in so many of these sermons that Peter brings. God is pointing a finger at Jesus. He is the one who is the prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, Peter is fearless. Fearless. I wasn't so fearless when I was in that history class in Grand Rapids Community College. I remember the moment very distinctly. I was not very fearless. How fearless are you, my friends, in your life when you face reproach? Why was Peter so fearless? Why was it that he could stand in the face? And by the way, think about the people Peter is facing down here. This is the Sanhedrin. Now, when you hear the word Sanhedrin, you need to think Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court. There were other Sanhedrins in Jewish, in the land of Judea. In fact, each city would have their own Sanhedrin. But the, Jew, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin was the court of courts, right? This was the Supreme Court. It was the final court of appeal. These were the greatest, the wisest, the most influential men in Jewish leadership. There was nothing, there was no higher place, no higher court of appeal than the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. Now in front of these people, Peter says, yes, God has marked out Jesus as the Messiah, and you guys hung him on a cross and killed him. Now Peter, what possible, are you crazy? These people can kill you. They'll have your neck for what you just said. What is, what is the source then of Peter's complete fearlessness? That he just doesn't seem to, you know, you, you, you come across men in, in church history, like sometimes you look at Martin Luther, right? And you think of him standing in Worms there before the king, Charles V, right? The greatest man in the world at the time. And, and well, Luther did tremble plenty. But, but eventually God gave him a remarkable strength and courage. I mean, just the fact that he was in that city, period, showed remarkable courage. I think it was last... Was it uh, around New Year's Day? We, we, we talked about Savonarola. Remember Savonarola in Florence, Italy, how he just seemed to have no fear. He could just preach and, and, and call people on their sin without any regard for his own safety. Well, why, how do these men get that courage? Well, the secret. By the way, we talked about this in youth group. You remember that, young, young people? We talked about this in the youth group. The secret, though, is in verse 29. At the end there, we must obey God rather than men. You see, the apostles knew God. They knew who God was. And that solved the issue for them. There's nothing else to talk about. The Sanhedrin is just trifles in the presence of God. You see, my friends, when we believe, when we trust, when we respect, remember the Old Testament word, by the way, the fear of God, right? The fear of God, that respect and reverence that people have for God, it means that people get small. When God is big, people become small. Peter is just an unlettered, uneducated fisherman. He has no credentials, except that he has the fear of God in his soul. And that's why he says, we must obey God rather than men. You can do with us as you please. It doesn't matter. I believe in God. The three men stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And Nebuchadnezzar, with all his rage and with all his wrath... And with the furnace burning there, right in plain view. And what did they say, essentially? Nebuchadnezzar, we must obey God rather than men. Those flames mean nothing to me. Why? Because I trust in the God who created them. When God is big, people are small. 
Maybe, maybe it would be better to say the threats that we face from people are small. So Peter is, fierceless, er, is fearless. Let's move to Gamaliel. This is so very interesting to hear Gamaliel speak. Gamaliel was such an influential scholar in those days that when Gamaliel died, the Jewish people wrote that scholarship has died with Gamaliel. That when Gamaliel died, scholarship died. In other words, they had such respect for this man's thinking, for his wisdom, that when he died, they felt as if all scholarship had died. Well, Gamaliel now stands to speak. And don't forget that in verse 33, we're told that they fully had intended and resolved to kill the apostles. And in the face of that, Gamaliel stands to speak. And the first thing he does is he points out to these people, to the Sanhedrin, that there have been other people who have caused great revolutions and movements. There were other people who had garnered a, a large following. But he said they fizzled out. He talks about Thutis. He talks about another man named Judas of Galilee. He said these guys too, they, they're the flash in the pan. They, they came up, yeah, a bunch of people rallied around them, and they did this and they did that, and then it, it just fizzled out. Behind Gamaliel's thinking here, you almost think that, that Gamaliel is saying, you know, it seems like the best way to make one of these movements big is to try to suppress it. And he says, you guys are going to go after these apostles. You're going to throw them in jail. You're going to kill them, whatever you're going to do. All you're going to do is, is make this movement flame all the larger. It's going to get all the bigger. Your very efforts to suppress it are going to make more people interested in it. Just step back. Let it fizzle out, just like all these other movements, as Gamaliel's counsel. We don't, have to, we don't even have to do anything. If you, make, if you kill these men, they're just going to be martyrs for the cause. People are going to be marching through the streets of Jerusalem with these men's picture. right? And this is Gamaliel's thinking, right? Don't try to suppress this. But then he goes on. And he, he, makes, he, makes, he makes these remarkable words. He says, verse 38, So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. My friends, that's deeply interesting what Gamaliel says there, for this reason. Isn't that what Peter just said? It's the same thought in different words from what Peter said. We must obey God rather than men. And Gamaliel is now saying, Sanhedrin, if you try to wipe these guys out, and this really is a movement of God, why, you could actually be in the position of fighting against God. My friends, I take you back to what I said previously. Here's the empty prison cell. Here's the apostles preaching in the temple. There stand the guards of the prison, protecting this cell. But there's nobody in there. And I said to you at that time, that didn't that preach to these men, didn't that cry out to these men, you're on the wrong side of this issue. And now Gamaliel raises the possibility that we could, be, we could end up fighting against God himself. Again, Peter says we must obey God rather than men. Gamaliel says you men better be very careful. Because if this is just a human thing, then it's just going to fizzle out just like all the other movements have. But if this is really a movement of God, 
you could actually be found fighting against God himself. There is, my friends, a Jewish tradition that Gamaliel came to Christ. Now, I hate to say this. It's just a Jewish tradition. It's pure speculation. There's no reason to believe it's... Well, let me not, let me not say that. There's, there's no historical reason to believe it's true. But I wonder in my mind, and I could say that this morning, I'm not saying this on the authority of Scripture, but I wonder in my own mind if the Spirit of God wasn't already beginning to pull at this man's mind. Remember, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He had no issue with the resurrection. He was not a rationalist like the Sadducees. But I wonder if Gamaliel wasn't listening to the preaching of that empty prison cell. I wonder if Gamaliel wasn't listening to the preaching of that lame man standing on two good legs. I wonder if Gamaliel didn't hear about Ananias and Sapphira. And I wonder if that thought didn't begin in his mind. I could be found fighting against God himself. What a wonder it would be, my friends, if Gamaliel today is in heaven. And before you say, why, wow, that's just impossible, the greatest scholar of the Jewish religion, my friends, I, I can easier believe that Gamaliel made it to heaven than that the Apostle Paul made it to heaven. The Apostle Paul was a zealot. He was a, a, a man of fierce passions, especially in his youth when God actually converted him. Gamaliel was a man of steady mind, a scholar. He listened and he sifted and he carefully listened. Well, I'm not going to say anything more about that, but just to think about what a wonder it would be if the Spirit of God had taken hold of Gamaliel before he died and if he had come to bow before the risen Savior. Well, let's come now to these applications. Ridicule. My friends, ridicule. Mockery. You know, it's one thing in, in our life when we, when we face arguments and people who oppose our faith, who oppose our convictions, but what a different thing altogether it is when we face ridicule and laughter and mockery for our convictions. This is the kind of reproach that we have to bear. Now we read in this line that after the apostles were beaten, they received the 40 minus 1 uh, in verse 40. And in verse 41, they went from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Shame, my friends. Again, I, I, I say it's one thing to lose an argument with somebody who opposes us. But to feel the shame and the reproach of being laughed at and scoffed at and mocked at, that's something altogether different. That's very difficult to betake. Very difficult to bear up with. And you know, real biblical religion, real Christianity, I'm not talking about the liberal Christianity, right, that, that blesses everyone and that and, and it covers everything over, right? I'm talking about real biblical Christianity, which teaches that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes unto the Father but through him. Christianity that teaches us an inerrant scriptures, an infallible Bible, a created world, 
that God became man, was born as a baby, that he lived, he died, he came back to life again. All this, my friends, the world laughs at and scoffs. They don't bring arguments. Their method usually is to scoff and to, and to heap shame and contempt upon the people who would believe such mythology, who would believe such fairy tales. And that's difficult. That's challenging. I was, I was uh, deeply interested by what Jude says. If you have your Bible open and you turn to the Jude, you could see how, how Jude wrote many years ago. And yet it almost seems as if he was writing today. But the letter of Jude, the, the second to the last book in the Bible, just one chapter, and in verses 8 through 10, read with me what Jude says. He said, so Jude and verse 8, yet in the same way these men, now he's talking about previous men who uh, were uh, wicked, wicked men, yet these, in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Isn't that a picture of our own day? Isn't that a picture of our own day? When people who don't understand the Christian faith revile it. Again, they don't necessarily, some do, but most don't argue against it. They don't bring reasons against it. They laugh and they scoff and they mock at it. Like unreasoning people. Elsewhere in Jude, he says they're like clouds without water. In verse uh, 12, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit. Clouds without water and autumn trees without fruit. This, my friends, if you're going to stand for Christ, is the kind of treatment you can expect in the world, in college, in university, in the workplace, and in many other places. This kind of ridicule we must be prepared to receive. I move to my second point. And that is how to respond, how to deal with this kind of reproach. How can we stand strong in the evil day? Well, let me just make this point in the first place. And this is something that many people have recognized. That when we are mocked and ridiculed for our faith, already, my friends, that's irrational, isn't it? There's no argument there. There's no reasoned argument to respond to there. I know it's very difficult to, to receive it, right? Because we, we're embarrassed and sometimes we're ashamed. I certainly was when I was a young boy or a young, young uh, adult in college, okay? But it's so interesting to me that so many people in our day say, you know, we need to have a conversation. We need to talk about these things. We need to talk respectfully. But that's not the treatment we receive, is it? All we receive is that we're ignorant people who despise education, who hate science, who hate logic. Now, again, I would submit arguments to you that the reverse is true. But at any rate, let's just recognize that already. There's no argument there. There's really nothing even to respond to, is there? It really is what Jude says, a cloud without rain, a cloud without water. It's a tree 
without fruit. I am astonished at how, how, how relevant that passage from Jude is. If that doesn't apply to our day, then nothing does. Clouds without rain and trees without fruit. There's no argument there. But let's look at something more biblically based then. So in the first place, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Again, how can we deal with this kind of reproach, this kind of mockery? How can we have that same attitude that the apostles had where they counted a privilege to suffer shame for the name of Christ? Well, no, in, verse, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 3 we read, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and so on. And so in the first place, how can we deal with this kind of reproach? Know in the first place, my friends, that this is God's will. It is God's will that his people, that his children, face reproach and shame and contempt in society. And I think that lightens the load, that lightens the burden a bit, doesn't it? We confess, right? We all confess that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Well, in the, in the fatherly providence of God, he expects that his people will face this kind of reproach and be better for it. That is God's will for us. Again, that is a burden that is a, a burden that God expects us to carry. Mockers will come, said Peter. Mockers will come. It's also God's gift. Now, it's hard to think of a beating, 40, 40 lashes minus one as a gift. And yet, when we read in Philippians 1 and verse 29, Philippians 1 and verse 29, we read these words, For to you it has been granted, or it has been given, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but wouldn't you like to just line out the next words? But also to suffer for his sake. You learned that, right? That faith is a gift of God. What a privilege it is that God has given us faith to believe and to trust in the Savior. But my friends, the verse goes on and says God's also given us another gift. I'm not sure how welcome a gift it is. But God has also given us this gift of suffering for his name. This reproach and this suffering is God's gift. That's why the apostles in Acts 5 can say. That's why they can say. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then your character. Philippians 1 and verse 17. This kind of shame, my friends, and perhaps this is the good that God expects us to receive from it, has its effect upon our character. Now, I want to ask you a question this evening. What do you think of the Apostle Paul's character? What do you think of him as a person? Read with me in Philippians 1 and verse 17 where he's speaking about these people who are preaching Christ. And he says in verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now, my friends, imagine that. These people are, are preaching the gospel. But one of their intentions is because they want to cause Paul distress. 
They don't like Paul. Again, we're not told the situation here or how it ever became like this, but they don't like Paul. And so to poke him in the eye, you might say, they preach Christ, and again, I don't know how or, how or why they did that. Maybe it was the place they did it or how they did it or where they did it or when they did it. I don't understand that we're not told. But whatever it was, they had bad motives. They had selfish motives, and they wanted to do injury to the Apostle Paul and to his reputation. Now, how does Paul respond? Verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. What do you think, my friends, of Paul's character? That's the question in this second point of application I want to ask you. What do you think of Paul's character? Isn't that remarkable? That even though these people are aiming their arrows directly at Paul himself, trying to do him injury, that Paul says, I recognize that even in spite of that, they're preaching Christ. And if Christ is preached, I'm happy with that. Now that is incredible, isn't it? That is a remarkable degree of humility and of strength of character that this man had to make such a statement. And yet, my friends, I find that when we're doing the work of the church, whatever it is that God has called you in this church, the minute we meet some kind of opposition, it's so tempting for us to say, I'm done with it. Forget it. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to engage in that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm finished. What a different character the Apostle Paul had. And what a different character we should have, my friends. That when someone tries to, to bring up some point of opposition or some point, some obstacle, whether it's real or just pretend, whatever it may be, what kind of character do we have to stand strong in the work of the, of the Lord and to say, well, it's a setback, it's disappointing, but we're going to push forward. I'm not going to give up on this just because somebody tried to dump a bucket of cold water on it. We move forward. Perhaps this is something of why it's a gift, that we bear this reproach and shame, that we learn to carry on in the work of the Lord, even when we meet with disappointments and setbacks, even when those disappointments and setbacks come from people within the church. I had to chuckle the, this, this the week when I was thinking about this. One of the preachers who I was reading said, every church has an international bucket brigade. And these people have this, the, the one responsibility of dumping a bucket of cold water on every good idea that is proposed in the church. Now, that's kind of, that's kind of uh, funny, isn't it? Except that it's also very true, isn't it? But how do we respond to it? Do we respond in a malicious manner? Do we respond in a manner where I'm just going to, I'm done with it, I'm not going to do anything else then? Or do we move forward? And let's remember that that's not really fair, is it, to talk about a bucket brigade because many of the objections, many of the things that people bring are good things. We need to think about them, right? We can't just plow recklessly forward. We need to weigh and consider. All those things need to be done. That's useful. But what about the character of the Apostle Paul? Why? Because the Apostle Paul was a man who had suffered, my friends. He had suffered in the work of the gospel. And he had received real setbacks. Not the kind of setbacks we face, the trifling little things we have to, you know, the Apostle Paul had been beaten 40 times minus one, like five times, I think he says, in, in the book of Philippians. Well, let these setbacks, let this shame, this reproach we have to bear, have its effect upon our character. Now, I have one application to go yet, and I'll be very, very quickly here. There was that walk home, right? They had been released from the Sanhedrin, and on they go, it says, so they went on their way. And as they walk along that way, I can't help but think, of 
what that conversation must have been like. And now I'm going to engage in a little speculation. Think about these men. They're broken. They're bleeding. They're in terrible pain. They've been beaten. And what do they say? I imagine Peter saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. And as they walk a little farther, I imagine John. By the way, John at this point in his life could not have been much older than in his 20s. A very young man. But I imagine, again, John piping up, saying, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, Paul was not with them. He was still back with Gamaliel. He was a student of Gamaliel at this time. But if Paul had been with them on that way back home, as they walk, bleeding and broken, I imagine Paul would have said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I imagine him saying, as he said to the Corinthian church, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Well, my friends, many things to think about as we face reproach and shame and contempt in this world. I pray God would bless these words to us and that we could stand boldly and speak the name of Christ. Speak of this life as the angel gave command to the apostles to do. Let us pray. Almighty God, we draw near to you at the close of another service. Lord, this is such a difficult thing in our life to have to face the contempt and the shame that is poured upon us because we believe in the scripture, because we follow you, because we cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ and we have found this life, we have found a life in Christ that is better than any life that any worldly institution or organization could ever offer us. We've found this life, an eternal life in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to go, to stand, to speak, to be bold, to say in this world we must obey God rather than men. Lord, help us to be wise. Help us not to be obnoxious. Help us not to be... Uh, help us not to give a testimony that actually brings shame upon your name. But still, Lord, help us to be wise, gracious, and tactful, and bold as we stand for Christ in this fallen and broken world. And help us not to fear the smiles of men. Help us not to fear the reproach, the shame of men because we trust in you, because we know the God who is able to cast both soul and body into hell. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us then and keep us faithful in all these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to number three in our blue hymnal. Wherefore do the nations rage, and the people vainly dream, that in triumph they can wage war against the Lord supreme? And what follows then, let's just sing the first two verses of number three, verses one and two of number three in the blue hymnal.
blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be on you. Amen.